0: William Goldman, he's he's the author of *Misery*, *The Princess Bride*, um, and *Butch Cassidy and Sundance yeah. Kid*. <laughs> wow, um, and this guy, <laughs> in which lie did I tell he tells the story about cut the Coen brothers, and he watched *Big Lebowski*, and he he goes to see the Coen brothers, and he just goes, "You sons of bitches, where's the bowling tournament?" And they went, what? He goes, look, I don't know what's going to happen in that tournament, but I know it's going to be epic and probably someone will die. What happened between Walt, John Gooden's <laughs> character, and Jesus, John Totoro's character? What happened? Where was that scene? And they went, it's just a backdrop thing. It's like a backdrop character thing. It's, it's. It, we're never going to show the bones when he goes, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El Wakil, co author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So, today we're going to talk about the Big Lebowski.
1: Yes, and as always, if you want to get in touch with us, we've got the website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com, and we've got Twitter, at thestorytoolkit. And I did those the other way around last time. Doesn't matter.
0: Thanks for all the reviews. Uh, and comments and tweets and things
1: And this is why I mentioned the other way around The website is where you can email us uh, yeah. If you have ideas for episodes
0: Yes, and you can message me on um, on Twitter and stuff
1: Yeah, and as always We accept um, star ratings of any number Any <laughs> denomination Our
0: favourite star rating is the one star rating It is perfect. Like Chris Hilton, it's perfect It's just great
1: <laughs> All right
0: so today, to it. we're going to talk about the big Lebowski, or rather, we're going to talk about the Coen brothers. I think we brothers. need to talk about the
1: way you say Lebowski. Le- how did I... I said Lebowski, didn't I? <laughs> how did I say it? I think if we stop and play it back, you'll see that you said it as Lebowski. Did I say Lebowski? You did.
0: Oh, that's cool. It's, oh. Okay,
1: Lebowski by the Coen brothers.
0: <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah, I, I like the idea that when we do these director ones, I have to change the name. <laughs> so it's Quentin Tarantino, became Tarantino. Tarantino. So the Coen's doing the, the by (laughs) Glabouski. Brilliant. Yeah. Go for it. Anyway. So the (laughs) film we're talking about is the big Lebowski. (laughs) Um, and, um, yeah, you've all seen it. Yes. But people like your synopses. They do. You're quite right. So the big Lebowski goes like this. Um, Jeff Bridges, uh, shows up and has a career. (laughs) Um, he, the, the big Lebowski was this little cult film that has, Become an enormous cult film, and I, and you guys all know it because if you've ever drunk a White Russian, which I hear is very popular in America, it's because of this film. Uh, bowling didn't exist before this film. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so the, the 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 I mean, people apparently like they rent out bowling alleys, dress up as the Big Lebowski
1: characters, yeah. bowl and watch the film, right? Yeah, or something. I mean, it's 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 got a huge cult following. Yeah, in America. Uh, f- no, over here as well. They really? play it. Yeah, they play No, at, but we don't dress up over here, do we? Yeah, they do it. Do they, they? Yeah, they do it at the, uh, the Prince Charles uh, Cinema, which I mentioned before. It's oh. an amazing cinema in there. London. It's they, probably just they because they've you know, been very Americanized. I mean, I thought, oh, this country had
0: class. <clears throat> uh, I'm joking. They spend all their time in Weatherspoons. Right,
1: so. Right, they do. <laughs> um, so. It's a niche reference for our largely American audience.
0: <laughs> there we go. Uh, Weatherspoons. Uh, it's an equivalent in, in America, but I don't know what the equivalent would be. So uh, I'm going to make one up. It's um, Potato heads Cafe. Anyway, so Big Lebowski is about... This is terrible. <laughs> this is even worse. Push past it i'm gonna cut this bit out okay okay and then we're gonna come back into it okay now so the big lebowski is about a character called the lebowski um and the dude right played by jeff bridges is called lebowski right and uh <laughs> people kidnap his rug the just his rug his rug that tied the whole room together and the reason they do this they're nihilists you see they believe in nothing. Um, The reason they've done this is because they want to hold uh, a a woman ransom. And the woman is the wife of a guy called Lebowski. But it's obviously not Jeff Bridges' character. It's this big tycoon character called Lebowski. And so Jeff Bridges kind of gets involved in this whole routine, this whole kidnapping scam. He's supposed to be the private investigator who kind of solves everything because what happens is he gets given the ransom money. And he's supposed to deliver the ransom money to the kidnappers. And that ransom goes completely wrong. Uh, first of all, there's no money in the bag. Uh, and Walt, Walter, his friend Walter, played by John Goodman, is crazy. And dives out the car with a gun in order to try and kill all the kidnappers. And that doesn't work either. Um, and so he ends up caught up in this incredible mystery conspiracy of kidnappers and stubble identities and all this and he just wants his rug back because the rug tied the room together, <laughs> right? And Walter agrees with him that that rug did indeed tie the room together. And so this whole film is him just going, I, you know, just just let, just give me my rug back and all that stuff. And the nihilists—it turns out the nihilists never actually kidnapped anyone. Um, oh. <laughs> the 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 wife has gone off on her own. Um, she's just run away with money. Uh, <laughs> just, it's just this fast of the events that happen. and at the end, uh, more importantly than all this, there is a bowling tournament <laughs> that uh, Walter is very com- feels very uh, passionately about this bowling tournament and uh, we never see it. By the way, bowling tournament never happens. Donny, one of their team members dies and um, does he get the rug back? I've forgotten.
1: Uh, I don't believe he does.
0: I don't think he does, does he?
1: No, he gets a replacement. He gets
0: a replacement rug. Yeah. So um, that's the Big Lebowski.
1: How does Lebowski end? Is it just after the Sam Neil uh, after the funeral? Talking,
0: yeah, and Sam Neil talks to the dude in a bar, or in the bowling alley, right? And then uh, yeah. and then he turns to the camera and is like, "Yep, yep, that's all, folks." He doesn't do he doesn't do Porky Pig, but uh, but that's essentially how it ends. <laughs>
1: Okay, so <laughs> why are we talking about the, big, the big
0: Well, reality? because, so the, the interesting thing about the Beelaberski, and I hear this is quite a common thing, uh, which is I hated it the first time I saw it.
1: Yeah, so something that occurred to me when you were talking about, I remember the first time I saw it and I hated it. Yeah. And it's occurred to me since, uh, it's occurred to me now that, because um, that was the first Coen Brothers movie I saw, Coen Brothers, apologies, um, <laughs> that I've, I, that, that I think I've disliked every movie on. I don't think I've liked a Coen Brothers movie on first watch. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm aware of that now, so it needs a second watch.
0: Yeah. I, I, me, I anyway. When I realised that, I started going into Coen Brothers films kind of like it's really trying to turn off any <laughs> sense of expectation and just let them tell me what their film is. Because uh, the thing that the Lebowski, is not the Lebowski, the Coens do, is they are really, they really go against um, expectation. And this is why they're very, they're very small filmmakers. They do not have a big audience. They're highly respected in critical circles, but the only real hit they've had is True Grit. No Country won the Oscars but it didn't it wasn't a huge success. True Grit is their only film that made a huge success.
1: True Grit was up for loads but didn't win, is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and No Country, No Country. So before No Country, the Coen brothers everyone was like when are they going to get Oscar recognition? Yeah. And No Country came along, they got Oscar recognition for it. And then their next film True Grit was a huge hit and after that they haven't really I think they've only made two films since then. A Serious Man came out after No Country. Gambit? Uh, Gambit they didn't direct. They wrote it. Oh, right. Um, uh, so, but Gambit, A Serious Man, and Hail Caesar were not hits. Uh, and Hail Caesar, I believe, was a flop because it cost a lot. Yeah. And we'll, um,
1: we'll, we'll come back to well, yeah. that one in a bit. Mm.
0: So, they're, they're always playing against type. And so I, I saw Big Lebowski and I didn't like it at all. I didn't understand why people liked it. I thought it was boring. And then I saw it in Tesco uh, for £3 on DVD. And everyone had been telling me how much they love it, including my dad. Uh, and I wouldn't have thought he would have liked this kind of film. So I'm like, okay, there's something I'm missing here. Because if such a stri- like a spectrum of people like this film, what am I missing? So I picked it up and I watched it again, and I remember there's a scene where he has, um, uh, he's just slept with Julianne Moore, and it's the night after, and there's a scene, uh, and the shot is on his hand, like hanging out of the bed with a cigarette, and it pans up his arm or whatever I think. If I remember right, which up her arm, I forget. Something like that. And I remember going, oh, it's Chinatown. And then I went, this is a whole parody of Chinatown. Like this is, this the whole joke of this is: what if J.J. Giddis didn't care? <laughs> right. So he's embroiled in like levels of intrigue, like not just J.J. Giddis, but all these sort of hard-boiled film noir detectives—Sam Spade, yeah. Philip Marlowe. He was just like what? they just come rather to know what if he didn't care? Just one time. What if he didn't care? So they did this incredible parody that. No one's really done before, which is they just took the the sort of dudester hipster hippie pacifist guy and made him a hard boiled private detective. Essentially, what they did is they did the same gag Hot Fuzz did, right? They took a very established genre, oh, but I then see, they right. took a protagonist that is totally against type,
1: yeah,
0: and put it in there to satirize the genre conventions. Right and everything, so it becomes this wonderful little parody pastiche type thing, uh, simply because the protagonist is does not have is not the kind of person you expect them to be. So in Hot Fuzz, they put it in the British West Country because nothing exciting happens there, right? (laughs) So how can you have a Michael Bay bad boys action American Hollywood cop film in? The West Country, well, that's the gag, right? Mm. Uh, And The Big Lebowski is like, how would you do a private eye graphic novel thing where everyone's trying to kill each other and it's all really dark and gritty when the main character doesn't really mind about anything, doesn't have any strong opinions, and is a pacifist, right? And he's just going, dude, you know... Like the nihilists, you know, they're... Constantly, like those nihilists are hilarious. We believe in nothing and all that stuff, and they want their money. Then you have that wonderful bit there's a showdown at the end where they the nihilists show up and they want their money. They've been exposed because they didn't kidnap the woman, right? So they, they have no leverage to get the money. There's no reason. Lebowski's there, he doesn't have the money, right? He's the wrong Lebowski. So the nihilists have messed up on several levels. The goal went with the goal, like, did a runner they've decided to pretend they kidnapped her. They've then tried to ransom the wrong man, right? So there's so many levels why this isn't working for them. And Lebowski's now like, oh, man, you
1: know, just go
0: fuck yourself. And all that, like, he's had enough. And Walter's with him, right? And Walter's like, you know, you're entering a world of pain because Walter's a Vietnam vet who is completely unhinged. And the nihilists are just like, well, we want our money. It's like, well, you're not getting it. Is that... That's not fair. Like, and then Walter's just... <laughs> You're a fucking Nihilist. What (laughs) And he just, and he bites one of their ears. (laughs) And during the fight, Donnie just dies of a heart attack. And it's just ridiculous. And I remember watching it the second time. There is a bit where where Lebowski, where the dude is expecting the Nihilists to come into his place. And so he's got a block of wood. (laughs) And he hammers the block of wood, right? Up against the door. So that when the door... He uh, needs a chair
1: up against that under the door handle. Yeah, that's
0: right. He puts the chair up under the door handle, puts wood on the floor against the chair, so he hammers the wood so that they can't open the door. And then they just open the door because it opens outwards, not inwards. And the chair just falls over and goes, huh? And I remember... I remember when that happened and I was laughing so much. And I went, how did I not find this funny last time? Like, how... How is it possible that the first time I saw this, this wasn't funny?
1: What's funny is in the the satire podcast, we talked about um, uh, the the kind of stretchy gap when you're telling a joke. Mm. The audience has to travel that distance to make the connection between the two things. Yeah. Right. Um, And it's if you don't understand really what is being satirised then you can't get the joke right and so that's first true. time you watch lebowski if you don't understand that's a good point that this is a parody yeah. of of the genre then you wouldn't make that connection yeah. so it's not funny what you do laugh at are the 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 little slapstick bits yeah uh, but also i think but i didn't laugh at those bits i the first time i watched it i see i didn't laugh i um when i was in the midst of finding it boring and not really understanding it. Mm. um or rather so finding it boring because I didn't understand mm. it I remember the belly laughs that the um, uh, the mug being thrown in his face at the mm. cops office got which is funny right yeah. but uh, uh, and well, everyone was laughing and it just well, everything
0: Walter says is funny yeah you're out of every daddy <laughs> like how is that not funny and yeah I wasn't laughing and I I actually have a, I have a suspicion one of the reasons is the DVD cover Okay. The DVD cover.
1: Is is that the toe one?
0: It's the one with the toe. Sure. Right? Uh, In fact, if I remember, it's the foot with the toe missing. Yeah. And uh, it's like from the makers of Blood Simple. Right? And there is this sense. I always thought The Big Lebowski was this sort of edgy, dark thing. Yeah. And it's not. It's really silly and very stupid um, in every delightful way that that can be. It's not. It's not a dark film noir thriller. It's a joke of one, right? Mm. It's closer to Dead Men Wear Plaid than it is to Blood Simple. I mm. um, the Blood Simple the Coens did obviously. Mm. But you mean, do you ever see Dead Men Wear Don't Wear Plaid? No. You never know, saw Dead Men. Okay, we may have to get you to watch that so we can do a podcast on Dead Men. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's Steve Martin doing a a film noir parody, but the way he does it is he splice. It's all black and white, and he splices in actual film noirs. So there's a bit where he's talking on the phone and he's cut in a scene with Humphrey Bogart on the phone. And he's saying... So Humphrey Bogart's saying the dialogue from his scene, but Steve Martin's filling in the blanks. So it makes different sense. It's just hilarious. It's so silly. Uh, And it's got Nazis in it. Nazi private eye comedy, all black and white. And it's... It's old. Yeah, it's just so silly. Um, But, But my point is, like, Lebowski... Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, you know. Steve Martin's on the cover. Yeah. Right. And he's doing, uh, you know, it's like, and it's got a comedy tagline and all that kind of stuff. It, this is silly, right? It's a comedy. Ooh, they day and Big Lebowski isn't like that. Uh, the, the 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 cover for that doesn't look like it's a joke. It's trying to be edgier, right, mm. and stuff. And also, you've got Jeff Bridges on the cover, and Jeff Bridges is not a comedy actor, right? Mm. And you've got John Goodman. He's a comedy actor on television because he's Dan from Roseanne, and then he's not right uh john goodman if he's not fred flintstone if he's not in a crazy costume right he's not he's not he's not a serious uh he's a, sorry he's a comedy actor right but otherwise he's known for doing serious stuff john goodman mm-hmm. right so it's one of those weird films this is actually a problem with the Coens in general which is because the cohen's have such a distinctive way of doing things and they have this way of like we're just going to do our thing right uh, it's hard for them to generate an audience and it's hard for their producers to cu- cultivate one because how do you market them, right? Hey, here's a story in which very little happens and doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: it's like, how, how do they do that? So what do they do? They make these sort of mistakes and that positions the audiences wrong. And so it becomes even more difficult for the audiences to come in and get them. But people then re-watch them. And once they rewatch them, they kind of go, ah, I get it, right? And then suddenly they fall in love with them because now they get it. And that seems to be the overwhelming case with this, the Big Lebowski, right? A lot of people, they watch it, didn't like it. They watch it a second time and they go, oh, this is hilarious, right? Because now they all those expectations of what they were told to expect from this film, from basically other films, trailers, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. is gone. And now they can just enjoy it. Uh, and that's why I think the Coen Brothers have adi- I've seen all the Coen Brothers films and I've watched a couple of them multiple times or whatever and there's some that are my favourites and there's others where I watched it once and I was like I like that but I need to watch it again to really appreciate it mm-hmm. uh, the one that springs to mind is Miller's Crossing yeah I was wondering uh, I watched it once I watched it once and I thought this is way better than I'm realising I could tell I, w- I wasn't hooked by it Yeah. and I think it was because I was exp- I was just constant that. So we talk about expectations and stuff. Oh, you know what we should do? We should get Will to do the Miller's Crossing. I was so going to watch.
1: say, it doesn't Will love Miller's Crossing? Yeah, for Crossing.
0: the Tommy Gun scene.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So the Tom. So Miller's Crossing, all their films. I, I, every single one of them. Um, Miller's Crossing. The only reason I watched it a second time is I really want to kind of you know destroy the rest of reality just so I can sit down and watch. You know, I don't want anyone to call me. I don't want anyone to deal with. I just want to be able to like sit down by myself, just, you know, in an armchair with, um, well, not brandy, but that kind of image, <laughs> you know? Anyway, so I don't know why I've cultivated this thing of, like, I really am looking forward to my second viewing of Miller's Crossing. <laughs> but um, all their films, like, I've watched them, and just the way that they, they do a thing and they, 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 they play out their stories, and you just, you kind of just have to check in what you expect because um, often the, th- the crazy thing about them is they never ever try to fool you they don't go in and go haha we're going to give you a thing and then we're oh, shoot your there's the twist and all, they don't do any of that stuff they're really clear from the beginning what type of film you're watching they signal their audience very clearly about what this is about and um, and yet you still just presume because you you know, we watch so many films, we know what they're what they where they're going with certain things and it's like, no no, we, we just have to kind of uh it's kind of, you just kinda of have to watch them without having any sort of uh preconceptions. Like when you go into like one of the things I love doing is watching a film where I haven't seen the trailer and I don't know anything about it. Mm. I love doing that. Um uh and when that happens it can be really enjoyable. Because you have no idea what even genre this is. Um, I used to go to... There was a little film club at the cinema. And at Thursday 11am they would have play a film. I didn't even know what the films were half the time. I'd never heard of them. So I'd go in, having seen no poster, nothing. just Even just knowing the name. And uh, the, the guy... He passed away sadly. But the guy, the little old guy, would uh, read a thing at the beginning telling everyone what the film was about. Mm. And I would put my fingers in my ear and I wouldn't listen <laughs> And then when he sat down, I would take out my fingers and I'd watch the film. And I'd watch a film I had no idea who was in it, what it was about, anything. And it's it's a one. It's actually a really nice um, tool for just pay. Like if you really want to pay attention to how you set an audience up in a certain
1: way. What's the uh, what's the best one you watched in that little endeavor? Uh,
0: the best one I saw. You know. Um there weren't many Good <laughs> there, there there was one I liked, but uh it really was unfortunate. Called Ma- what was it called Mary Martha May Magdalene something like that. It's sure. four names beginning with M. Okay. It starred uh, Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlet Witch. Okay. So uh, and she's she's excellent in it. And she's one of the, she's a girl that gets kidnapped by a cult. And um uh, it's it's really really wonderful, and the whole film starts with her. She's escaped the cult, and it keeps flashing back to her in the cult, and then her with her, in the present day with her family, and her trying to get to grips with. She's no longer in this cult, uh, and at the end of the film, they're driving her away. You know to help her and everything, and behind her is behind them is a car following them, and you're pretty certain that the cultists are behind her right and cut to black and i'm sitting there going no 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 we've been waning this whole film for the cult to come back into a life in some way
1: mm.
0: and uh they never do it's two acts and it just stops and it's really disappointing because the film doesn't have an ending doesn't have a finish it just stops and um and it's not it's not great as a result but up until then it's really wonderful mm. um but anyway I don't
1: know why we brought that up. No, I brought it up. It just—I I was curious more than anything. But it's—I uh, don't get to see many movies where they haven't been set up in some way. And, yeah. And the only one I can remember is uh, *Wreck*. A Spanish movie which got remade in Oh America yeah, yeah. as Quarantine, right? And I didn't know any. I didn't know it was a horror movie. Oh wow! So you just go in thinking, okay, and yeah, ah. yeah, right. And I mean that that's quite well, the movie to do. It there, with.
0: there are a couple of obvious films that everyone knows that have seen, but they couldn't get the full experience of them because of that, because they've been positioned in a certain way, like Predator and Terminator Two. Right? Sure, yeah. Terminator Two, you're supposed to think uh, Arnie's the bad guy again. Yeah. And in um, uh, Predator, it starts off as an action film, almost a comedy.
1: Stick around,
0: all that stuff, right? And then it turns
1: into a full-on horror film. I so I would love to do a podcast on Predator, by the way. <laughs> and I had the, a, fr- a friend was just to still... talk about the just to talk about the, the muscle mass, <laughs> You're pushing right? Pushing too many pencils. <laughs> um, uh, and our friend was talking about it recently and saying that he he really disliked it. He said, "What? What's the hell? What the hell? That movie's crazy." I'm like, "It's perfect. It's great. It's perfect. It was really fun." Anyway, okay. The whole the whole point of that little segue was just delving deeper into the idea of it expectation is, it, and position, yeah.
0: The right? one I remember a film that I saw. Uh, Aaron brought a film to me, and he wouldn't let me. He wouldn't tell me anything about it, and it was Spirited Away.
1: Oh, nice. Okay,
0: and I was just like, Whoa. I'd never seen anything.
1: Like Spirited Away before, I'm like this is unbelievable. See, I've not seen. It. There's a whole ton of Ghibli movies. Yeah, we're gonna seen. we are gonna we'll, do a Ghibli we'll, thing because yeah, we'll, Wobbles asked us to at some point. Yeah, later. yeah, yeah. But um, um, in fact, we'll do it soon. But yes. um, Spirited Away, um, I I caught I think ten minutes when it um it was just on Sky one time when yeah. I was flicking through and uh i don't know if you remember in the dark crystal this is always the image that springs to mind in the dark crystal where the pod links get put in front of the big pink crystal i, I don't think i've ever seen the dark you crystal okay dark crystal is wacky but it's uh. great um uh these little characters get put in front of this uh this um uh this crystal that um i guess brainwashes them mm. but they have they have these big kind of um uh doughy eyes like a kitten and then they stare into this crystal and they just get absorbed and you can see their mind being watched. i remember feeling like that <laughs> when i was watching right, the 10 yeah. minutes and just yeah. i didn't it was halfway through and just being yeah hypnotized by... that, that's
0: what Akira's like as well right i mean akira makes no sense but oh it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> So, but anyway, the, the point of this is that um, that feeling of when you go to it's like it's a nice way of paying attention because you can really divorce yourself from you have to let the if you know nothing about the the work that you're watching, you immediately have to start playing a bit of detective to try and work out what kind of thing you're seeing. Right. Uh, and so within the first 10 minutes, a writer has basically told you what to expect from the film how dark it's going to be, how funny, what kind of genres, etc. And, you know, we talked about gear shift movies where they completely shift genre at some point in the film. Mm. That's how you generate those kind of turns, right? You have to create those expectations. And what marketing does and um, positioning does is it smooths the audience's transition into those expectations, right? But if you've got something like the Mm -hmm. Coen's, who are very sort of um, not avant-garde, but they're very sort of um, playing their own game almost. Um, they they don't they don't really pay attention to conventions and trends in the way that you would expect. Um, as a result, like the the comments the commons just wear themselves on the sleeve, on their sleeve, right? They don't do they're not fancy at all. You know, Clint Eastwood isn't fancy either, mm-hmm. right? They just go in, matter of fact, bam. And so as a result, because they're going in and they're just doing things that they want to do, people have an enormous trouble positioning audiences for them. For example, uh, Mark Commode, the f- the film critic on BBC Radio something or other, he, um, he, he, he'll he often say that the Coens have two films. They have their dark, serious films and their um, quirky comedies. Hmm. And he likes the dark films, like Blood Simple. Uh, but he doesn't like the quirky ones. Uh, I think he... Uh, I don't know if he likes Big Lebowski, I think that's the one exception. Maybe not. But, you know, and the Coens kind of have that kind of vibe, right? Hmm. They would do Blood Simple. They would do Miller's Crossing. But then they do the Hudsucker Proxy.
1: Love you know, the H- for,
0: for kids. kids. <laughs> <laughs> right? they do the Hudsucker Proxy. Um They'd uh they do intolerable cruelty. <laughs> yeah. percussion. Um and um Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah. Right. And they they like adapting things. right because Oh Brother Where Art Thou is Ulysses <sighs> the idiot. Yeah,
1: Oh Brother Where Out Thou is one where yeah. I was positioned correctly, actually. I remember yeah. this now, I watched it and I thought, No, I like this. This is whack yeah. but it my I watched it with my mum. I love I love brother. She hated it. Really? Because didn't understand it. Yeah, because and
0: it's not because like it's 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 not an intelligence thing. No, it's just it's, it's just, an emotional thing. It's just, it's just the, like it's I don't Odyssey, get why am I being told the, why why are these things happening? And it's one, it, well, it's the Odyssey, but why is it in the south of America? Why are they go? I'm man. <laughs> why is that happening? Like, how is what is going on? Um, and like you've got the cyclops and you've got the sirens and all that stuff, yeah. but they're all dressed up. Where is this coming from? What's the uh, what's like? It's almost like why does this even exist, right, as a thing? But then you go, it doesn't matter why. It's like look how cool this is. It's great, yeah. right? So um, yeah, so they they will they'll switch between the two, right? But then uh, if you watch the about the Coen Brothers, you realize actually that distinction is just not true because Fargo and Barton Fink don't fit in either of those categories, right? In their very early sure. films, uh, Fargo is not. The dark, it has a, it has like a dark nihilistic thing going on, but um, it's very silly. I mean, the, the film is essentially the most important thing that happens in the film to everyone, other than the the criminals, is whether or not Norm gets the stamp. That's that's really important, because because for a Marge, essentially nothing happens to Marge.
1: Mm. Nothing,
0: right? And so uh, she doesn't get disillusioned. It's not like No Country for all Men. Or anything like that. She just has a bit of a, a horrible day at work. That's it. So, uh, and Barton Fink is...
1: Well, let, hold, hold on, let's stick with Fargo for a second. Because we talk about yeah. expectation, what we expect yeah. in a movie. Let's just crack open a few other examples and just kind of say what what's going on. So,
0: with Fargo, the opening title says... Uh, most of what fo- uh, follows, no, no, no. So
1: the following based it, on a true story. The
0: following is based on true story. Out of uh, respect for uh, the names have been changed out of respect for the survivors, and out of, and everything else remains the same out of respect for the dead. Right, if I remember, it's something like that. Yeah, and that's a pretty. That statement implies like something really horrible happened. Yeah. right because the people who got through it are survivors right and uh, the people who died must have not died well at all mm. and that something really terrible happened except a couple of problems it's not a true story okay uh, and secondly um, what actually happens in the course of the story is a, a kidnapping goes wrong and if I remember right three people die three the wife dies the father dies and Steve Buscemi dies that's it oh no there's a couple of people that uh, Strowman kills on the road right that's it and the most gruesome death is the woodchipper death right but it's almost funny I mean it's it's a black comedy Fargo right because the character who you're seeing all this happen like first of all Steve Buscemi is funny Uh, William H. Macy is funny and Marge it's funny <laughs> because Marge is just like, oh jeez. oh yeah, you know the 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 great detective scene in Fargo is this wonderful bit where uh, the other cop goes, I think they're from Delaware, eh? and she's like, I can't agree with your police work there. I don't know why she's Irish. I can't believe with your agree with your police work there. It's like, well, why D L R isn't Delaware? It's dealer plates. It's brand new cars. It's like, oh yeah. Yeah like that It's just just like And then she goes And has scrambled eggs There's Like it's just It's just They're they're in Minnesota And nothing really matters And it And at the end of the film She She stumbles on the guy And you're like Oh my This is the big shootout scene And Stromae has put Steve Buscemi Into a wood chipper He sees Marge Who is pregnant He runs away She shoots him In the back of the leg He falls over She handcuffs him puts him in the car and as she's driving him to the police station she says you know don't understand it there's more to life than money you know <laughs> that's the film right that's, that's Fargo that's all there is to it it's ridiculous right? it's such a but you start off thinking like this is going to get really dark and it's like no not really it could have but it doesn't do you think
1: that's the one case where the Coen brothers actually did um play a little with the audience I think they played with the audience, but it's quite obvious,
0: I think that the Cohens <laughs> thought you you were in on the game right right they didn't they didn't expect people to think this is their serious like crime it's like we we were just having fun they never like there's never an interview where the Coens go yeah, yeah. it's based on a true story like, yeah, we just thought that'd be a fun aesthetic for it, yeah. Like we're just playing with the the form of true stories. That's it. Have you seen any of season three yet of Fargo? No, but also they they did. There's another thing they said, which was the the fun of doing. The reason they did it as a true story was you can do things with a true story you can't do if it's fiction. And the scene obviously is the scene where Marge goes on that date with an old friend from school. She meets him for dinner, and he starts breaking down crying. And it's like, why is this in the film? This has nothing to do with anything. And like what it does is it expresses um, the fact that Marge is sort of unprepared for these kind of people, but she can deal with them. Yeah. But um, uh, it's just it's just this weird thing. And it's like we can they realize they can do things and get away with things because people think it's true. Right, because we put that veneer around it, but really, they're not—they're not trying to fool you in that way. So serious man. So serious man opens with this, with this prologue uh, around the turn of the century, and um, two Jewish people let another person in during this horrible storm, and it turns out that this guy is basically a zombie. Uh, they shoot him. He doesn't die. He laughs, gets up, and curses them and leaves. Okay, never comes up. So I was watching this with Will, and um, we're sitting there in the film. We're just going, when when does the zombie come back? When does the Jewish zombie come back? never does. It's called a dubbik, I believe. Never comes back. Never comes back at all. No one ever brings it up. All through the film, the main character is going to rabbis trying to understand why his life is falling apart. And we're thinking, well, the rabbis will... There's a story. There's a whole story that the rabbi tells about the... (laughs) guy who goes to a, a Gentile goes to a Jewish dentist and the Jewish dentist discovers Hebrew letters carved in the back of the guy's teeth right and he takes this guy there why are the letters in the back of the guy's teeth what's going on he tells the whole story and um, <laughs> the the guy is the main character. that like, well why were there the teeth in the back and go oh I don't know no idea Right. And so you're you're hearing about calf teeth. I was like, when's the zombie come? Never comes back. (laughs) Never comes back. And the whole film is a character going like, what is going on? What's the sense of this? What's the point of this? And at the end, it's just like, yeah, no. Uh, Finally, they get to the oldest, wisest rabbi. The kid of the main character gets the oldest, wisest rabbi. And he's been sent there because he got in trouble for listening to a Walkman. In, ju- in rabbi, in rabbi school, or whatever, and the rabbi just goes, When the truth is found to be lies, and all the joy within you dies. And at first, you think, Okay, that's a really profound statement. And then he goes, Jefferson Airplane. And he's basically quoting the songs that the kids has been listening to back to him because he likes the songs, right? The, this old grizzled rabbi filled with wisdom, and he's just quoting song lines, right? And that song plays throughout the whole film, constantly. So this film, like, there's never any answers being given or anything like that. It, and the Coen's just went, it's the story of Job. That's what it is, you know, from mm. the Bible. There are horrible things happen to a guy and he doesn't know why, right? And um, so they did the story of Job like this. So why is the zombie stuff at the beginning? And they were like, well, we thought it was nice to set the tone and uh, give it the sense of, like, there's a curse on his family and... And uh, and it was like almost fun. It's like it's basically an opening cartoon, (laughs) like a Daffy Duck thing, but just setting the tone for the film. That's all it is. Mm. Um, It's nothing more than that. And um, so but you you expect expect zombies. And so (laughs) that's the first time you watch it. Second time you watch it because, you know, the zombies never coming. You then pick up on the rest of the film. Right. The rest of the film you ignore because you go, yeah, whatever. Uh, the zombies coming. Like I saw Dunkirk, and I was convinced Andrew Garfield was in it, and I missed a, the good twenty minutes of the film. Going, none of these characters matter because they're not Andrew Garfield, and he's the main character. So I'll just wait for him to show up. And then after a while, it's he's never showing up, and I went, "Ah, this is a different film, <laughs> right?" So it's it's just one of those things. Like you you miss things when you exp- when you're convinced a certain thing's going to happen, you miss all the other things that are being set up well, suppose- because you know it's coming. Speaking of that, no country. No country for all men. Um, you think Josh Brolin is the protagonist, and he's not.
1: And you spend the whole movie watching it, which means when he dies off screen, you go, what?
0: <laughs> exactly. You do the Tim Allen, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that that's it. That's because uh, Josh Brolin's character. Um, you I, I remember watching the film. Again, I saw this with Will. And I was convinced that the end of this film was a three-way shootout in the airport between... No, four-way shootout, your pardon, in the airport between Chigurh, Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, and the Mexicans. And it was going to be the best shootout I've ever seen. There is no shootout. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. There is a shootout, but it's off screen. Because um, it's, it's not about that. It's about Tommy Lee Jones' disillusionment. Um, and once you watch it a second time, you get it. Like it just makes sense, and so, um, and so the the so the the way that the Coens work, and they did this with Lebowski, is they they just make their film plainly, quite openly. They but what they don't do is this: they don't try and fool their audience, and they don't have characters explain things, because the way that the Coens think, quite rightly, is that the Images on the screen, the events being depicted should explain, should be the explanation. They shouldn't need anything more. Mm. That so all their work is being done through what is on screen, right? So they don't have a character, basically, you know. Go, hey, it's a satire of Chinatown or whatever, because they don't think they need to, because they presume you'll pick it up, because they're not keeping it you see what I mean they're not hiding it they're not trying to trick you yeah they're very open like, this is the thing I never understand about criticism of the Coens because the Coens are super clear about why they're doing what they do. they never pretend they have none of that mystique people go what is that film about and they go well you know we thought it'd be funny to put a slacker in Chinatown so how does it apply to post-Soviet Russia what? like what <laughs> <laughs> like people want these juicy answers and they just go like yeah it's just about this like No Country for Men they made it very clear it's like yeah we don't the
1: opening do you think, s- yeah do you think this kind of uh, this kind of situation epitomises the problem with that outside in criticism
0: not necessarily it, it, it's, it's more to do with just a way people presume meaning is done like people presume meaning is created through secret symbols Implanted by the writer And director right. And that's just not the case it's, They're not meant to be secret symbols Like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code That you're supposed to unpack Like an archaeologist
1: It's not like yeah, that no secret symbols. There's a neon sign above yeah. each one But there's a
0: neon sign in, in, in all of the Coen Brothers No Kindish opens With a voice over monologue Of the desert And Tommy Lee Jones Saying the entire meaning of the film <laughs> right his whole thing of a man would have to go what was it uh, there comes a point where uh, evil today it's hard to even take its measure right like i don't understand the evil today mm. and the Cohen brothers are just going kind of, we got they they in an interview they went we, we reached a point in our lives where we go and we think it's something that happens when you get older which is this feeling of the world is more violent than when you were growing up and you don't understand the new kinds of violence that have shown up mm. That's the whole f- That it's called No Country for Old Men. I, remember I mean, that's why it's yeah. called that, right? <laughs> and it's based on a book, right? So they read the book, they understood the book, they went, This is how we're feeling about the book. And not only did they make No Country for Old Men, they've been trying to make No Country for Old Men since Blood Simple, right? They had this character that kept showing up in their films Blood Simple Raising Arizona Fargo Miller's Crossing they had this sort of nihilistic character who just killed people for no real reason mm. right and ever since No Country they've stopped because they got it right they finally got it done like they they went they did it with Javier Bardem No Country Men, and they went we can never top Sugar, so it's done that bit's done for them you know so uh, so people like you know they want all these sort of um they want these sort of symbols and elements to it and the Coens are just sort of you know matter of fact about what they're doing they're very literally minded people they're just sort of like we're just going to do it plainly Mm -hmm. and so as a result um, because they do it plainly and they expect that their stories will express what they're saying and they're not trying to hide anything they don't try to trick an audience and they don't care so much in the same way, about what will the audience think? Because in their minds, they're so clear about what they're doing, they don't see the point in trying to get you on board. Because they're like, well, we're just out in the open about this, you know. So uh, and so as a result, what happens is people uh, sometimes they they just don't know what they're doing, and it takes a, a little bit time to get used to them.
1: I have a question. Yes. Why did Hail Caesar? do so badly so Hail Caesar I watched Hail Caesar and I liked it
0: right? I liked it because I got it everyone else didn't like it uh, for, the, for the reason what, what was going on here's the problem with Hail Caesar Hail Caesar is a film this is the plot of Hail Caesar um, Josh Brolin uh, plays a media mogul okay like a Hollywood executive guy and he's in charge he's like trying to keep the studio producing films and uh, George Clooney gets kidnapped by a bunch of communists. <laughs> He's an actor. He gets kidnapped by a bunch of communists who are going to get blacklisted for being communist. It's the 50s Hollywood thing. And uh, you think George Clooney's going to die. There's going to be a bloodbath with the kidnapping. The kidnappers, by the way, are writers. They're rubbish. George Clooney is an idiot and sort of starts to empathize with them. Uh, and all the, it's just so silly, right? Here's the problem. George Clooney is not the main character of this film. He's a bit part. Uh, the film also has Scarlett Johansson. It has Channing Tatum. Uh, uh, Channing Tatum turns out to be a Russian spy, by the way. Uh, on and on it goes. These are all cameos. Tilda Swinton is in the film, playing her own twin sister. She plays two completely different characters, but they're twins. And they're both reporters. Uh, she's in two scenes. Three scenes, maybe. Uh, just con- uh, Ray Finds. Ray Fiennes is in this film as a amazing uh, British director who is forced to direct a almost illiterate American Western actor in a Brit like in a proper high aristocratic film, and it's like would that it were, and the guy can't even say would that it were. He's just trying to would that it were, would 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 that it were, and it's like would, 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 that it it's, like, would, would, would. it's this wonderful scene where he's trying to get him to say would that it were, and Then when you finally see the clip of the film, he goes it's complicated right? like, like this and um, yeah Ray Fiennes is in it for one scene uh, on and on the film is about Josh Brockman he he is the, the probably he he's in the second tier of every, every, all the because the whole point is it's set in a Hollywood system right yeah. all the cameo parts are supposed to be A-list superstars yeah. so they cast A-list superstars for all the cameo parts and what did the audience do? When's George Clooney coming back? Right. When's Scarlett Johansson coming back? How did they market the film? All these actors were all over it. And so, you're, but once, you, once I was watching it, I'm just like, okay, none of these guys are what's relevant. What's this film actually about? And you realize it's about Josh Brolin. It's like Josh Brolin in a really small film. And that's another thing that the Coens do. The Coens shift from doing classical stories to minimalism to anti-plot, anti-structure in the same film. They switch around all the time. So, Kale is a good example of this, but so is Big Lebowski, where uh, what's going on, what's actually of interest, is really minimalistic and tiny. I want my rug back. Mm -hmm. But the backdrop is this incredible classical film noir conspiracy, right? But that's not the sentence. Film Isabel, right? And so it's it's that's how, that's just how they think. They think the way the Coens all their films are: the main character is going through something really small, but the backdrop is something really grandiose. Every time, and people keep making this fundamental mistake, which is they think the backdrop is the main story, and not the small story. Mm. And it, that's it. And every time they make that, people so make that. that that's
1: No Country as well. Yeah, it?
0: every yeah. single one of their films. Yeah. The story of No Country is the internal disillusionment for uh, Tommy Lee Jones against this backdrop of a manhunt.
1: I remember you seeing it, and um, uh, after I'd seen it, and I said, "No, I don't like this movie." I got all grumpy about it. And, yeah. Um, and you said, uh, and you explained, and said, you know what? So okay, so it's. What, it's meant to be a problem that your subplot is just more interesting it's than, just than, too than, good than, yeah it's just too good yeah. like, that's quite a problem to have it's a it? good problem yeah <laughs> yeah you know but it's true like all their films are like this and um
0: and uh, and pe- people kind of just keep expecting them to um uh, to go a certain way and they just don't I, one of my favorite stories this is way within the big Lebowski I guess one of my favorite stories this comes from William Goldman's oh, yeah, book yes. which lie did I tell? This is a great story. William Goldman, he's he's the author of *Misery*, *The Princess Bride*, um, and *Butch Cassidy and the Sun, Cassidy, Sundance yeah. Kid*. <laughs> wow! Um, and this guy, <laughs> in which lie did I tell? He tells the story about cut the Coen brothers, and he watched *Big Lebowski*, and he he goes to see the Coen brothers, and he just goes, "You sons of bitches! Where's the bowling tournament?" And they went, what? Because look, I don't know what's going to happen in that tournament, but I know it's going to be epic and probably someone will die. What happened between Walt, John <laughs> Gooden's character, and Jesus, John Totoro's character? What happened? Where was that scene? And they went, it's just a Backdrop thing It's like a backdrop Character thing It's It's. It, we're never gonna Show the bowling tournament When he goes You're wrong You're wrong You're wrong You're wrong And in his book He's going And they're still wrong We should have had The bowling tournament Right And you know He's being a bit Tongue in cheek But that is I think One of the best like that's like, that is the crystallization of the Cohen brothers, which is they do this thing that in their minds is the backdrop and the audience thinks is the main part of the film. Right. And it never is. It's never the main part of the film. They are happy to have a film filled with a list characters. And the main character is none of them. Right. It's a B. uh, It's an act you may never even heard of. Um, These, these guys just, it's, it's, It's not that they reverse expectations so much or play with them. Rather, it's that they are very open about the kind of film they're making. They're very plain spoken in their filmmaking. And they expect you to be paying attention and to just go along with it. And they don't try to fill you in or... Basically, the only way that they could position you is to say, Hey, you know other films... This is not like them. Mm. And what they do a lot of the time is they adapt. They adapt books and things. So for them, it's like people have already seen this. So do you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're not thinking. It's almost like they don't even consider who's watching the film. They just think, look, we'll do it plainly, simply. Out it goes. We're doing it right. And audiences, are, and I think part of the problem is because they're they're sort of a very small uh, audience, they've got a cult thing going and you have, as, as I was saying like, when critics talk about them, they want to get into all this sort of mise en zen, zen stuff and things and if someone doesn't, un- like if you don't understand what The Big Lebowski is about, there is no shortage of books that will tell you what The Big Lebowski is ba- about and none of those books clarify the film, they all uh, obscure it, hmm. make it more obtuse and they try to talk about this, and they talk about that. There are it's, actually
1: books about The Big Lebowski.
0: All kinds of books, articles. Uh, what, do the, what do the Coen brothers... Uh, seriously, type Coen brothers in any of their films and meaning, and you will get no shortage of people trying to divine the meaning of the films. And I'm always astonished at these things when I read them, because if you actually read it, it's like everyone everyone's opinion about their films is valid, except the Coens. <laughs> so the Coens don't hide it they never hide it uh, they, they're very clear about what was No Country for Men about? This what was uh, Fargo about? This what was The Big Lebowski about? This and then people go that's not enough of an answer so they make up all this stuff it's like, The Big Lebowski is uh, this wonderful film but the whole fun of it is just about like you know what would happen if this character was in this world and just the the emptiness of it and the pointlessness of it and that's what these guys love writing about they love writing about the absurdity of life so right they that's what appeals to them how absurd things can be how people can in their heads build up these incredible stories but they but life isn't anything like that life is really sort of almost uh abstract right they do that in all their films. I mean, Barton Fink, what does what Barton Fink accept that, right? The guy in his head is supposed to be a writer. He gets completely trapped with writer's block. He has all these lofty goals for his writing, and eventually it seems like he goes completely crazy trying to just break his writer's block. He can't do it. Right? He just can't write in Hollywood. He can't do it. Um, and so you know the big Lebowski, like Walt is like they're in a the world of pain, and all this craziness about the bowling tournament, and everyone's like, ah, oh, the webs of intrigue, and the dude's like, I just want my rug, right? That all their films are about this sense of you know, with Tarantino, we were talking about how his style informs his choices, right? With with the with the with the Coen brothers, their view of the world, which is that there seems to be Grand meaning to it, but when you uh, 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 like, there's a backdrop of meaning, but the individual parts of life are just completely absurd and pointless almost. Mm. That's what guides all their films, and so all their films have these big, grand story elements, but they're always about fundamentally minimalistic, anti structure elements that draw that are the focus of the film, and so audiences just get confused because. I think fundamentally it's not that they're playing with the expectation I think it's because no one else does this. No one else does this. There are no other directors or writers who write like the Coens and produce films like the Coens. And so as a result because they are always it's funny because they're always doing the same thing, you know. I mean that that's the that's one of the great signs of a of a real um author. You know, Charles Dickens always wrote the same thing. Right, you just variations on the same thing. Shakespeare variations of history, you know. Um, so people do variation like when when someone's voices just bring they kind of tell the same story, but there's variations of it. It's not something you can force. It's just something that's naturally there, right? And it, it becomes more apparent the more that works they make because you start seeing like Quentin Tarantino's films, right? They, those things are fundamentally always the same thing, right? That's why he has the same argument every time he makes a film. right? Everyone wants to have the same argument about movie violence with him. Because every time his films are kind of the same. And I don't mean repetitive. Same doesn't mean repetitive. They're wonderfully varied. But it's the same kind of world. Same kind of genres. Same kind of meanings and themes and motifs. Coen Brothers are the same. And no one does this. And what they do is is such a structural... um, It's so uniquely structural and thematic in their own way audiences still from one coen brothers film to the next we we it's hard for us to even get into their mindset from one film to the next because it's always the same thing and i was i was kind of happy with hell caesar because i i'd heard it wasn't good people had bashed it when i watched it very quickly i went ah oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is about brolin and as soon as you realize it's about brolin and all those a list celebrities could be bit star characters you've never heard of before just random actors Suddenly, the film just makes a lot more sense. It's not. It's not without its faults. I mean, it's not great, Hell Caesar. It's not as good as their other films. No. But um, it's fine.
1: Okay, let's put a neat little bow on this. Then, what do we? What do we take for our writing?
0: Over oh, this is the Top Gear type thing, isn't it? <laughs> Once you have your supercar, remember to keep it always.
1: It's <laughs>
0: just one of those things. Uh but. The thing to take away from it is, I, I, would, I would presume, the nature of uh, your audience. Here's, here's the thing to take away. The reason the Coen brothers have had success throughout their whole career is their films cost nothing to make. They always kept the budget of their films heavily in their mind. They kept the budget really, really, slow, really small. So that when they made the film, it didn't have to make much in order for their investors to make a lot of money. And as a result, they were able to have their living making films, right? They would make these short little films, independent films. I mean, this is, by the way, why critics jumped on them. They were making quality, independent films cheaply. In other words, they're making films outside the Hollywood studio system. And you have to understand that critics, basically, are at war with Hollywood. This is why Citizen Kane is supposed to be the best film in the world. It's because they can point at Hollywood and go, you don't even know what an art movie is because you made one and you didn't realize. Mm. That's the whole point of it, right? So there's a big war between them. The Coens uh, made all these independent films. They made money for their investors. They made enough money to keep living and making more films. And all the films they made were these wonderfully original, unique films. Uh, And that's because the Coens understood that their films do not they these are not big genre tentpole films right I mean the only two genre tentpole films they've made are intolerable cruelty and true grip right mm. uh all the others aren't okay uh, And they've had some big stars I mean they had George Clooney before he was really big mm. right but they had George Clooney and stuff but they've, they've had they can get one or two actors that helps fund the film out it comes right uh and so, what I would take the, the the lesson I actually learned myself personally from this is if you're gonna make something, and this is what we learned when we were at fods together, okay, which is you've gotta think about the fact that who how the size of your audience and how much it's gonna cost to make your thing right it's it's a very it's a very nice budgetary thing of th- way of thinking. And it assess it's adjust it's almost it's adjusting your expectations of your audience. If you write a story, you can't expect it to be this huge blockbuster hit if it's not going to be about certain things in life. If it's about the smaller things in life, it's going to have a smaller audience mm. um, And so you have like for, I mean for, you know what we I even use this thinking for this podcast, right How many people really gonna to listen to this podcast? How many people are going to care about it? And so on. And so that's why we do this in one take without really any editing, right? Why it's an hour long and so on. We're thinking, like, who's this for? And who's going to enjoy it? And how will they enjoy it? Like, you know, you see what I mean? Understand your audience. You're understanding your audience. The Coens understand their audience and their investors. They know that their films will not be a huge success. So they didn't do it. And the big mistake they made with Hell Caesar was, I think, the Hollywood bug right I mean it's, Hail Caesar is quite funny right Hail Caesar they got they did No Country for all Men they became these huge Oscar winning successes everyone wants to work with them and then they make a film about the Hollywood studio system mm-hmm. and they cast all the ma- main stars of Hollywood t- today as characters from the 30s in bit roles right and it didn't do well and I can't I can't for the life of me think the Coen brothers didn't know it was going to fail because <laughs> it cost way too much to make. Yeah. And it was one of their old films. It's just the regular films. The only thing they... I think it seems to me what they did with Hell Caesar was they went, all this money that they want us to make, we can make a film we would never be able to make on our own because we couldn't get the budget to make this film.
1: So they did it.
0: Yeah, and that's it. Uh, but do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I have to remember, before they did No Country for a Man, they, they wanted to make a film with Brad Pitt where he was a World War II pilot. He crashes in Japan and the whole film is him trying to get out of Japan. Without any dialogue. And by the way, then they did oh, they, they did no Country for that. the Fox wouldn't, the investors wouldn't pay for them to shoot in Japan. And so they went, okay, well, we can't do it because we want to do it in Japan, right? So they won't pay, so they did No Country for All Men. <laughs> they won the Oscar. Then they did Burn After Reading with Brad Pitt. You remember Burn After Reading? My memoir. I want to talk to you about the security of your shit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they did Burn After Reading, which was, which was a lot like Hail Caesar, by the way right it's it's wall to wall with the main cast right or with this crazy cast but every one of them it's an ensemble
1: that De- uh, sorry i'm just uh, i'm i'm yeah, i I'm, I'm, th- I'm thinking jk simmons yeah we got to take this
0: as a listen to not do whatever it is that we did right <laughs> yeah. Tell <It's, it's>, <laughs> me when this
1: yeah. starts to make
0: sense exactly right but that film is an ensemble
1: yeah
0: right and the main characters in the ensemble are Brad Pitt, Francis McDormand, George Clooney right yeah and, they, and, by the way, that played wonderfully with expectation. Finally, Brad Pitt and George Clooney. You're waiting for them to meet because they've just come off Ocean's Eleven, right? You're waiting for those two to meet. And... Like, Brad Pitt's hiding in George Clooney's closet. George Clooney's paranoid. George Clooney opens the closet. Brad Pitt's there. He smiles and before he can say a word, George Clooney blows his head off with a gun. And that's the film, right? That's all they... That's the only scene they have together. You've been waiting the whole film for them to work together. You never get it, right? Talk about expectation, right? So... But they may burn after reading and so... So... Hail Caesar is very much in that vein of hey Hollywood wants to make a film with us let's do a film but H- Hail Caesar the cast on was not on, was not really an ensemble cast and the main guy of the story wasn't the main actors right, right. so i i find it hard to believe they didn't know that almost going in um, but i don't know but that's what i personally think about when when i when you know when you look at the cohen's uh, body of work it just seems to me like it's it's really a masterclass of knowing how well you're going to do before you know when you're when they're trying to get investment and distribution and all that stuff they know they know the legs of their work.
1: I think taking aside putting the money issue to one yeah. side for a second, purely understanding your audience uh, is is important enough. Yeah. Like, just that, how, how will my audience receive this? Who, yeah. who and how many am I writing for? Rather yeah. than, you know, should I write to a 500 million budget? Or yeah, exactly. A, yeah. Or a what? Actually? Well, because
0: also it doesn't apply to things like novels and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Um, but th- their thinking, of course, is obviously for money that, you know, if we're going to film something, we have to shoot it. Yeah. And uh, uh, with True Grit, for example, they knew that if they couldn't cast a, a girl, if the you know if the child actress didn't work, the film wouldn't work. Yeah. They knew they had to get that right, and so you know they spent as long as they could uh, trying to cast her, mm. and they finally got a great cast, right? But they knew that that's the key to the film. Everything else could come together, but that thing was the one thing. So that they, it, you know, that they they are very meticulous in that sense, and so I I would think that's that's kind of important, which is
1: like
0: you know people kind of I guess it's funny because that's the point of their films, right? People run away with these daydreams and the, the reality isn't like that. It's like, yeah, everyone wants to their, their novel or their film to become this enormous success. But it's very rare that it will be when it's not, in, you know, when it's not already part of a specific genre, as it were. So if you're not in that world, it's probably best to just not to temper what you want to do, your ambition, but to temper your expectation, maybe.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and yeah, and,
0: and also, don't let the fact that you might say things in a weird way and your audience is small stop you from writing what you think is the right thing, right? Because the Coens, they don't care. They do their work properly yeah. and as best as they can, and then they they that's it. They don't they don't sit there and go, hmm. It, here's an interesting thing to read up about. Read up on uh, what the Coens said about how they made intolerable cruelty because it was supposed to be a rom-com right and they were like we're not those guys it's like we want you to do a rom-com you're all these big shots in Hollywood do a rom-com for us and so they did a rom-com about a divorce lawyer you know (laughs) and and they cast George Clooney as an idiot and all that stuff you forget Kirsten all this and you know say and the whole nail (laughs) the guy nails asses all that stuff right (laughs) and and you can tell like their their rom-com is a little darker right than other rom-coms there's an edge to it that yeah. normally you don't get and so um my feeling is you know they, they don't write sort of g- generic stuff right and even though they don't get a huge audience they still don't write generic stuff
1: so that's my feeling anyway I guess then if we're done I have one last rhetorical question uh-huh. so you revealed the secrets of the toolkit and said we do this in one take yes but my question is this Oh yeah this particular episode we did not do in one take. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. if 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 you're on your 37th take and you do it in one, is it still really your first take? Yes.
0: Also, <laughs> I've recorded two of the outtakes because what you guys didn't get for this, and I will put this up, Was is we over put the car crash. I started the podcast like I always do, and then Luke just savaged me, <laughs> savaged me for no reason without any setup, just laid into me, and I will put that little outtake up and uh, then we tried again and we couldn't help but laugh and then halfway through this one I forgot the lines to the Jefferson Airplane song but normally we don't we don't edit uh, at all but this one time we had to because because of that well the
1: thing is yeah we didn't edit this episode is held together by Sellotape
0: So today, we're going to talk about The Big Lebowski.
1: Hello, everyone. <laughs> you didn't say hi. I know you never say hi. I think that's rude. It's taken me 60 episodes to realise. What, well, that I don't say hi? No. You're just straight in. He's very presumptuous. It's... Okay. Hello. How are you? Good. Or, I'm sorry. Delete is applicable. Um, if you want to get in touch... Uh, then we're on Twitter at the Story Toolkit and uh, the StoryToolkit.wordpress.com uh, is our website with all the episodes, and you can email us directly. Then, thank you uh, to everybody that's been getting in touch with some ideas. Bass has listened to none of them, um, and so we're going to crack on with another one of his ideas. There you go. I've set you up nicely for this one. Hi everyone. <laughs> that's much better. How are you today? I hope you're all good. See, doesn't that nourish your soul? Howdy, howdy, howdy. <laughs> let's uh, let's get into it. I, you're right, my soul feels nourished by asking a microphone how it's doing. I think you have to imagine the other the people on the end of the microphone. Yeah, but the last time I imagined them, I was presumptuous. <laughs> so I just I feel
0: like uh, I feel like you just you want you want to have a fight about something? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what. Uh, or where come it's out going. swinging! You really did. You had no idea. Just, just sidelined me. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone, particularly uh, Chris Hilton, for his one-star review. Um, <laughs> it's
1: the greatest thing I've
0: read. <laughs> and uh, I'd also like to thank people who tell me how wonderful I am and how awful Luke is. Um, oh, I'm, so again, I'm imagining his... these people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also uh, I'd like to thank the three people in the back uh, with their shirts off woo, woo.
1: Um, yeah once again we do accept reviews of all stars this is a terrible opening it's a terrible opening now I think that you've called it it's uh, <laughs> it's highlighted it <laughs> even more crack on come on let's go <laughs> So,
0: today we're going to talk about the big Lebowski.
1: Hello. <laughs> <laughs>